From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, September 17th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Foreign policy is suddenly a focus in the presidential race. From a trade dispute with China to the anti-American protests in the Middle East, President Obama has his hands full. You don't have the luxury just of focusing on one thing, but your inbox sooner or later will roar up with something like this. And later, the foreign-born soldiers of the U.S. Civil War. We had Latino colonels in the Union Army in 1861, long before we even allowed the recruitment of African-Americans. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The U.S. and China filed trade complaints against each other today. Both nations are claiming to be the victim of unfair trade practices. Now, that would have been enough to overshadow U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta's visit to Beijing today, but Panetta's visit was already overshadowed by something else, a wave of anti-Japanese protests that's sweeping China right now. Some protests have turned violent, and several Japanese companies have had their facilities in China attacked. The tensions follow a territorial dispute that's between the two countries over a group of islands in the East China Sea. The world's Mary Kay Magstead is in Beijing. She's been keeping an eye on the protests. In Beijing, the protests were a little more controlled than they were in other cities. I was standing outside the Japanese embassy for a couple of hours and watching the same group of about 500 protesters go by singing the national anthem, carrying a picture of Mao Zedong, And there were jeepneys that would drive up every so often with dozens of bottles of drinking water and hand them out to protesters who would then promptly throw them at the Japanese embassy. At other Japanese facilities, shops, uh, some factories, restaurants, there was some damage done, windows broken, etc. And as a result... Panasonic has suspended operations at two of its factories in China. It's closed another. Canon has suspended production in China at three of its four plants. Uh, Ito Yokato, which is a well-known Japanese department store, has closed 13 of its supermarkets and almost 200 7-Eleven stores. The Chinese state-run media have been sort of taunting Japan and saying, we have $340 billion in two-way trade, and if you want to risk all that and have another lost decade of economic depression, you go ahead and keep acting the way you're acting. Is there reason to believe that much of what's going on here has been hyped by the Chinese leadership as a way, as some have said, to distract attention from some of the government's many troubles at home? What's interesting about this all coming to a head at this moment 
is that we're in the middle of a leadership transition in China. It has not gone entirely smoothly. There are a lot of negotiations behind the scenes. There is a lot of toing and froing and and basically a tug of war between different factions within the Chinese Communist Party. And China analysts had long thought that if there reached a point of crisis where the economy was slowing down, where there was factionalism that was getting in the way of a smooth transition, that there might be some effort to divert the public's attention to a cause that would rally nationalistic support. Uh, It may be pure coincidence that this is happening now, just weeks before the leadership transition, but even many Chinese on the Chinese equivalent of Twitter called Weibo don't think so. They think that the two are connected. Bring Leon Panetta, the U.S. Defense Secretary, into the picture here. This is his first trip to China as Defense Secretary. He happens to be there on other missions. At the same time, China is asking him to remain neutral in this territorial dispute between China and Japan. As things heat up, where does the U.S. stand on this? Well, a couple of interesting things about Leon Panetta's visit. He stopped in Japan today on the way to China. And while in Japan, announced with the Japanese government that the U.S. and Japan will have a second advanced missile defense radar system on Japanese territory. The Chinese really were not happy about this. They said this will only encourage Japan to continue acting aggressively as it has on these disputed islands and that this is the U.S. taking sides. Of course, when it comes down to it, the U.S. and Japan have a mutual defense treaty. And the Japanese have pointed out that that treaty would extend to the islands if Japan were to come into military conflict with China. Thank you. From Beijing, the world's Mary Kay Maxted. Thanks, Lisa. Susan Glasser is the editor-in-chief at Foreign Policy magazine. She's in Washington, D.C. Susan, the number of foreign policy crises at the moment is head-spinning. We just heard from Mary Kay about the South China conflict and the anti-American demonstrations in a broad swath of majority Muslim countries. There is the highly destructive attack that happened at Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. And, of course, there is the ongoing war in Syria. And we should mention Iraq and elsewhere. The list goes on, as you know. When you add all of these things together, for President Obama, what does it accumulate to? Is this a critical turning point or would you describe it otherwise? Well, you know, I think it's a good reminder that no matter how close you get to the presidential election and how much you want to focus exclusively on campaigning, the world happens, right? And that's the peril and also the opportunity of being uh, the incumbent president and running for re-election is that you don't have the luxury just of focusing on one thing, but your inbox uh, sooner or later will roar up with something like this. What's striking, of course, is that up until now in the U.S. presidential election context, foreign policy and world events have played very little role. And uh, before the conventions, I think the number was 4% of American voters who thought that uh, foreign policy would figure heavily into their votes, 4%. I'm sure that number is going up. Do you believe that if we look in particular what's happening right now in Muslim countries where there are protests going on, anti-American protests, does this give sufficient cause for questioning President Obama's approach to the Arab uprisings, response to them? Well, you know, there really are very serious questions uh, to be asked and and a real debate to be had about what uh, the right U.S. strategy is. We haven't even talked yet about Syria, for example, uh, where a new report out today shows that uh, the violence against civilians in that escalating civil war has gone up in recent months. We're talking about tens of thousands of people dead and not only no end of the conflict in sight, but actually it appears to be ratcheting up in its its deadliness. And so what's the conversation going to be about uh, whether President Obama 
Obama has taken the right course by largely sitting on the sidelines and uh, unfortunately allowing this this violence to play out, for example. And what is the argument for that, that he has sat on the sidelines and, and allowed things to play out? I mean, and the argument that he should have and could have done more, and more is in question as well as to what that could have been, to back America's friends in the region. Well, first of all, of course, you have uh, no international consensus and you have Russia and China, which have actively worked and blocked any effort to come up with a global consensus resolution on the UN Security Council. So that path is closed. Second of all, there's a belief that uh, the Syrian military is a much more uh, professional and deadly and organized military than that which existed in Libya. Uh, So there's not as clear cut of a military solution there. And thirdly, of course, there is the question of whether American voters have the stomach for another major military intervention in the Middle East. In many ways, it's quite possible that the events of the last week and the protests against U.S. embassies and, of course, the tragic killing of the U.S. envoy to Libya may actually increase the sentiment across the political spectrum in the United States for the U.S. simply to move away from the Middle East as quickly as possible. Do you think there's any reason to believe that a particular government that doesn't like Barack Obama is allowing more vociferous and violent protests, or do you think it's more organic than that? Well, I think what happened in Yemen is very different than what happened in Tunisia, is very different than what happens in Egypt and in what's unfolding in Pakistan, for example. So I think there are different fact sets and different levels of government engagement or disengagement, as the case may be, with all of these protests. So that while in Libya, the story may be, have we created a new failed state? What is the ability of a a generally pro-U.S. central government to project force and to protect American and Western diplomats around the country? The answer might be fairly minimal. So really, that might be a story about a potentially failed state. While in Egypt, on the other hand, the story may be, well, how come the Egyptian security forces weren't called out in force to to dispel the protests at the embassy when they certainly could have been. And so, again, you have a, a wide variety of situations to assess. Susan Glasser is the editor-in-chief at Foreign Policy Magazine. Nice to have you on the program. Thanks very much. The White House says President Obama personally called U.S. diplomats in the Middle East this weekend. He reassured them that their safety remains a top priority. The calls follow the killing of U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens in Libya last week along with three of his staff. Ambassador Stevens was known as an exceptional diplomat who valued contact with real people. The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem spoke with some who worked with the ambassador. 52-year-old Chris Stevens was described as one of the State Department's best Arabists. He served in Egypt, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and here at the U.S. Consulate in Jerusalem from 2002 to 2006. Veteran Palestinian negotiator Saeb Arakat says Stevens was an outstanding diplomat and a good friend. Arakat says he's had a hard time dealing with the news of his death. I was shocked. The first thing I did, I called my wife because she knew him very well. I told her the bad news and uh, she wanted to know why. I (laughs) said there's no reason. He was just murdered in an ugly act of terror. Erikot says what made Stevens such a successful diplomat was his ability to listen and learn from people in the Arab world. I sat with Chris hours on hours speaking nothing but Arabic. He did a brilliant job on himself to improve himself, to get acquainted with our society, to know our culture, to know things. And what was he doing here? Of course he was visiting his country, but at the same time he was trying to rebuild Libya. And for this you get killed. That's a despicable act of murder that deserves 
condemnation, period. Daniel Seidman is an Israeli attorney in Jerusalem who also got to know Chris Stevens closely during his time here. When Seidman heard that an American diplomat had been killed in Benghazi, he worried it was Stevens because his friend was the kind of diplomat who was always pushing the envelope. He had the gravitas and the dignity of the diplomat, but he was not at all formal. He was out there um, during the period that he was here, was the peak of the period of the suicide bombings. He was chafing at the bit. He wanted to be out there and very much uh, felt the restraints imposed by the security. He really wanted to engage people. That came through in Stevens's dispatches, says Michael Ratney. He's the current U.S. Consul General in Jerusalem. Ratney says he learned a lot about how this place works by reading daily diplomatic cables Stevens was sending back to Washington. I would read about meetings that he had in the West Bank, and it was more than just words. You know, you could smell the coffee he was drinking, and you could see the pictures on the wall, and you could feel the furniture that he was in. You had a sense of what what he was doing. You had a sense of who he was talking to. It was a wonderful skill. But how much influence do American diplomats, even the truly brilliant ones, really have when the big decisions are made back in Washington? Our strongest ambassadors in the field gave us policy advice, and we listened to them. Nick Burns is a former diplomat who served Republican and Democratic administrations. He now teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Administrations tend to listen to people who make sense, obviously who have informed views, who have a knowledge and expertise that is not matched by anybody else in Washington, particularly in these very difficult countries, say in the Middle East. In the wake of Stevens's killing, Burns says some in Washington are questioning the need for so many American diplomats stationed across the globe, but that's a mistake. There is no substitute for ambassadors who can speak the language of a culture fluently, who understand the politics and culture and history of a country, and who form the personal relationships with the people and leaders of that country. So diplomacy is very important to us. Security for U.S. diplomats is important as well, Burns adds, but Washington needs more people like Chris Stevens out there doing the tough work of American diplomacy, not fewer. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. A serious ailment on the farms of an island paradise, our story coming up on The World. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. A ceremony was held today in western Maryland to remember the bloodiest day in American history. 150 years ago, on September 17, 1862, a Union army attacked Confederate forces along Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg, Maryland. Now, the Union didn't win outright, but the Confederates were forced to retreat the next day. The human cost to both sides was immense. 23,000 men were killed, wounded, or went missing that day. Never before or since have so many Americans fallen in battle in a single day. Those are the well-known facts about the Battle of Antietam. One of the not-so-well-known facts, though, is how many of those who fought that day were foreign-born. 
Patrick Young has written dozens of articles on the role of immigrants in the Civil War for his blog, and he joins us now. As you write in your blog, Patrick, the Civil War generally is thought of as a conflict among Anglo-Americans. You are from Long Island, so why don't we start there? What role did immigrants from New York play in the Battle of Antietam 150 years ago today? One in four soldiers in the Union Army was foreign-born, about a third of them from Ireland, about a third from Germany, and a third came from places as diverse as Scotland, Hungary, Nicaragua, Siam, really all over the world. And at the Battle of Antietam, they played a particularly great and uh, really heroic role. Many of the New York Irish were in a unit called the Irish Brigade, which was named after a brigade in the French Army that fought against the British. And they attacked the Sunken Road, which was a heavily defended position at Antietam. And they essentially stood up in front of intense Confederate fire. And the lead unit, the 69th, the Fighting 69th New York, which was recruited just a few miles from where I'm speaking right now, lost 60% of its soldiers in just a few minutes. We also had German troops that played a major role in the battle as well. Yeah, tell us about the the German troops. Well, German immigrants had joined units, and these were very interesting units. They were units that spoke German. Today we have big debates over bilingualism, and in 1861 the uh, Secretary of War tried to ban the speaking of German in the Union Army. Abraham Lincoln overruled him. And because of that, we find tens of thousands of Germans who were fighting that day at Antietam and who really played uh, an important role in, in various parts of the campaign. There were a lot of reasons why immigrants, why those who were foreign-born would want to be part of the Civil War here in America. There were signing bonuses who were given to those. In fact, there was recruiting that went on just on the docks where immigrants would be coming in. What were some of the other incentives that were provided to them? Why, why did they fight? Well, most of the immigrants who fought at Antietam were actually part of the first wave of recruits. So many of the uh, bonuses or the draft really came in after Antietam. These soldiers said, particularly in the North, Germans said that they were opposed to slavery. In fact, I was just reading a uh, German, August Frick, who uh, lived in Missouri, who after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued on September 22nd, said, now our motto is, all men are created equal, white and black. And so that was an important role. Another thing that both the Irish and Germans kept talking about was, if the Union split up, it would damage republicanism or democracy around the world. The U.S. was the only major democratic nation in the world. And many of the German immigrants, many of the Irish immigrants wanted democracy in their homelands. And they said that princes and kings would rejoice if the United States was splintered up into two, three. The Germans thought it might splinter up into five or six small countries, just like Germany had. What do you think people should take away from this fact, that there were so many participants in in this central piece of American history, the U.S. Civil War, who were foreign-born. And Patrick, this gets into, I think, what your own interest in the subject is. Well, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that America was a lot more diverse from a lot earlier stage than we often give it credit for. We had Latino colonels in the Union Army in 1861, long before we even allowed the recruitment of African Americans. It also tells us that coming off of a 10-year period of intense anti-immigrant agitation, including violent attacks on immigrant communities, Abraham Lincoln stepped up and created a much more inclusive, much more multicultural America. And I think 
that he wasn't frightened by the fact that new immigrants spoke other languages. In fact, he hired a uh, German uh, publicist who published all his speeches in German because he wanted immigrants to know what was going on. He wanted to include them in the war effort, and he understood that they were an important part of the new America that was being built. Did they get treated as well as, uh, as soldiers whose families had been in America longer? At first, I think there was a lot of resistance to them, and there was certainly after some battles scapegoating of immigrants. If an immigrant unit ran, it wasn't ascribed to that particular unit. It would become all Germans are cowards or all Irish are cowards. But by the end of the war, you really see a much broader acceptance of immigrants. So I think that uh, there was worked in the American heart a change because they had seen that native-born whites in the South had, in the belief of many Northerners, betrayed the United States, whereas immigrants had stepped up to defend the United States to try to keep it together as a nation. Patrick, I'm still interested in, in, in what sparked your own interest in the subject. I'm a professor of immigration law at Hofstra University, but I also have spent many, many terms as the chairman of the New York Immigration Coalition, which is an alliance of 240 organizations in New York, of immigrant groups in New York. And with the 150th anniversary coming up two years ago, I decided I'd begin doing research to see if there were any commonalities or if there were any lessons to be learned by today's immigrants about what happened back then. And the series was originally written for immigrants so they would understand the Civil War. But it's interesting right now, I, I find that almost 75, 80 percent of my readers are native-born often civil war buffs or members of ethnic organizations, not immigrants themselves, but people who have found the fact that I've combined scholarship with lively storytelling uh, to be something that's engaging and also informative for them. Did you have any uh, ancestors who were in the Civil War? My grandmother's two uncles fought in the Civil War, and one of her uncles was uh, killed in the final campaign of the war around Richmond. Patrick, thank you very much uh, for your help on this. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Patrick Young is a Long Island attorney. He writes about immigrant soldiers in the Civil War on his blog, and we're going to have a link to his blog at theworld.org. We'll also have a link to a pretty incredible slideshow of the Civil War, photos taken by a photographer from Scotland. Patrick, thanks again. Thank you. A daring expedition that could make Antarctic history is the focus of today's GeoQuiz. Imagine trekking across the coldest place on Earth at the coldest time of year. Temperatures can fall to minus 100 Fahrenheit during the Antarctic winter. That's just one of the challenges that will face a six-person team that's planning to cross the frozen continent on foot next year. The expedition was announced today. It's going to be led by British explorer Sir Ranulph Fiennes. If all goes well, the trek will depart from a Russian base in Antarctica. Then it'll traverse 2,000 miles by way of the South Pole to reach Captain Robert Scott's old base. The base looks out on McMurdo Sound and beyond to a southern sea. Now, this is where you come in. We want you to name that partially frozen southern sea. We'll be back with more on the planned expedition and the answer in the second half of today's program. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, a mysterious kidney disease hits farmers in Sri Lanka. We are losing the very productive crowd in the country and their farmers. They feed us. 
so i think we have to save them because they don't have the ability to save themselves that story and more coming up on the world PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Last fall, we broadcast a story about a mysterious illness that is killing thousands of young men in Central America. It's a form of kidney disease that appears to be linked to working conditions in agricultural fields. Well, it turns out that a similar disease is killing people in a farming region on the other side of the earth, in the South Asian island nation of Sri Lanka. A new study there points to a possible cause, farm chemicals. But as the world's Ritu Chatterjee reports, that finding has yet to reach the people who are getting sick. Here's Ritu's story, produced in collaboration with the Center for Public Integrity. Tucked away in Sri Lanka's north-central province is the village of Halmilavatiya. A pebbled path connects small brick and mud houses. They are set among coconut palms and other tropical trees. It's here that I meet 21-year-old Sampat Kumar Singh. Hello. How are you? I am fine. But you can tell he isn't fine. Despite the brutal summer heat, he's wearing a wool hat. He speaks softly and he moves slowly for someone his age. Kumar Singh's kidneys are failing. They're no longer filtering waste from his bloodstream. My body is weak, he says. Very not. Like most people here, Kumar Singer is a rice farmer, but he says he can no longer work on his farm. He's being kept alive by dialysis twice a week at the regional hospital, and he's hoping to get a kidney transplant. Kumar Singer is one of thousands of people in the north-central province suffering from chronic kidney disease. 15% of the population here is affected, according to the Sri Lankan Ministry of Health. The public hospital in the provincial capital of Anuradhapura treats at least 2,000 chronic kidney disease patients every month. Dr. Rajiva Dasanayaka is the hospital's kidney specialist. He says the disease first came to the attention of physicians at the hospital about 20 years ago. They started noticing that there was a number of deaths due to kidney disease. And the physicians at that time noticed that it was not happening in the rest of the country. The Sanayaka says these patients didn't fit the profile of typical kidney disease patients. They didn't have diabetes or high blood pressure, the common causes of chronic kidney disease worldwide. The Sri Lankan government labeled this mysterious disease CKDU for chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology. Unfortunately for the CKDU, there's still no specific treatment. And the Sanayaka says there's been no known way to prevent it. So four years ago, the World Health Organization and the government of Sri Lanka launched a joint investigation to find out what's causing the disease. Palita Mahipala, a high official with the Sri Lankan Ministry of Health, says scientists looked for clues by testing people and the environment. We thought that you know we need to analyze uh, urine samples, we need to take blood samples and then uh, post-mortem studies. Then, of course, analysis of the soil, analysis of food, analysis of water. Those kind of things have been analysed. The results of those analyses were announced this summer in a press release. 
The culprit appeared to be two toxic metals, cadmium and arsenic. Mahipala says that people in the north-central province showed relatively high levels of both metals in their blood and urine. Both metals can damage kidneys, according to previous research. Now, the levels of arsenic and cadmium found in the study were generally within what's considered the safe range. But Mahipala thinks that continuous exposure to those levels may have damaged kidneys. Probably the chronic exposure would have been, you know, a reason for this. But if arsenic and cadmium are to blame, where are they coming from? The new study suggests the source may be farm chemicals. Certain uh, fertilizers... Agrochemicals contains uh, cadmium and arsenic. Cadmium is found in some fertilizers. Arsenic is an active ingredient in some pesticides, although it's illegal to use those pesticides in Sri Lanka. The new study suggests that chemicals containing these two metals are contaminating the region's food and air. That said, the government has yet to publish its full study, and the companies that import and sell pesticides and herbicides contest the government's conclusion. Senarat Kiriwatturuwage is with the trade association called Crop Life Sri Lanka. We believe the evidence is not scientific enough to say that the pesticide is the main reason for this chronic kidney disease. And these findings are not published in reputed scientific journals elsewhere. Some doctors and scientists familiar with the study agree that more research needs to be done. But many believe that farm chemicals are at least partly to blame. You see, farm chemicals are so cheap here, thanks to government subsidies, that farmers tend to put far too much on their fields. The government in its press release recommends that farmers reduce indiscriminate use of fertilizers and pesticides to protect their kidneys. Yet little has been done to spread that message to the people who should hear it. Farmers I spoke to in the north-central province said they don't even know about the study. J.A. Jayaratna lives in a small village called Mihintala, a few miles from the regional capital. He's 46 years old and has chronic kidney disease. No, they haven't told me about the cause of the disease. Jayaratna shows me his stock of fertilizers. A few plastic sacks are piled in one corner of a shed. He says he has no plans to change his use of farm chemicals. There's no change in fertilizers. We'll use these fertilizers for the next crop. Not only do farmers not know about the government findings, consumers haven't been told what foods are most likely to be contaminated with arsenic and cadmium. The government says it will release that information after it's done more detailed studies. But the fact that the WHO and the government have not publicized their findings to the affected population frustrates doctors, including Palita Bandara. He's the top health official in the north-central province. We have to start to knock out the agent from the people because day by day it will accumulate to the skin, blood and other peripheral organs, including kidney. Bandara says since farm chemicals are the suspected source of the toxic metals, the government should improve measures to test fertilizers and pesticides imported into the country. He says many fertilizers come from China. We don't know what type of chemical ingredients, elements are there in the fertilizers. As for pesticides, last year customs officials did test some imports and found four kinds of pesticides contained arsenic. Those pesticides were initially seized by the authorities but later released. The head of the Pesticide Regulatory Agency assured the public that the arsenic levels were too low to cause any harm. 
Sampat, the president of a professional association of government doctors, Anirudh Padaniya, sees the incident as evidence that regulators are reluctant to police the agrochemical industry. That showed me that there is certain vested interest going on. For its part, the government says it is looking more closely at agrochemicals imported into the country. But Padaniya believes that the government has been too slow to address chronic kidney disease. He says the illness should be a national priority. We are losing the very productive crowd in the country and they are farmers. They feed us. So I think we have to save them because they don't have the ability to save themselves. Still, there are many unanswered questions. Even if toxic metals are to blame, is the main culprit cadmium or arsenic? Are the metals coming mostly from pesticides or fertilizers or both? And if farm chemicals are the root cause, why aren't farmers elsewhere in the country affected by the disease? Back in the north-central province, the region which is affected, I'm surprised at how little anger and frustration I encounter on the part of the locals. What I do sense is resignation. P. Dingiri Manike is the mother of the 21-year-old kidney patient, Sampat Kumar Singha. She says ever since she found out about her son's disease, she's been sad. I'm still sad, she says. And yet when I ask about the role of the government, she says she's grateful. She says the government hospitals provide medical care to her son for free, and that includes dialysis. In other countries that have been struck by a similar kind of kidney disease, like Nicaragua, few people get dialysis. It's an expensive procedure. Here in Sri Lanka, the government is expanding access to dialysis and kidney transplants. That is keeping many patients alive. But what frustrates doctors and public health officials is that more isn't being done to keep people from getting sick in the first place. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, Anuradhapura, Sri Lanka. We've got photos and a video and a lot more from our partners at the Center for Public Integrity. Learn how Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka are donating kidneys to help the sick. And hear our story from last year about chronic kidney disease in Central America. You can find that all at theworld.org. The mayor of Toronto, Canada, is under pressure. Rob Ford is a conservative. He was elected in 2010, vowing to eliminate wasteful city spending. Now Mayor Ford is under fire for using taxpayer resources to raise money for a football foundation and for abandoning a city council meeting six hours early to go coach a youth football team. Reporter Ian Brown is covering Mayor Ford's saga for the Globe and Mail in Toronto. He has his football foundation, and he raised some money for it uh, using mayoral stationery and, and using some of his assistants to do so. He got called out for that, and he was going to return about three grand that he raised using those techniques, and he did not do so. And then the city council had a vote to see whether he should return the money, and he voted in that vote, and that was against the conflict of interest rules of of the mayor. And as a result of that, his case is now being heard by a judge and the judge is going to decide whether the mayor broke the conflict of interest rules. That's not the end, though, of some of the controversy around him. I mean, controversial issues around him. Another one has to do with his policy, I guess, which was pretty popular in the beginning anyway of his uh, cutting city hall spending. He is cutting in, in one particular way. He's not having a car and driver provided to him as mayor. 
Sounds like that would win him a lot of votes, but I guess it's kind of gotten him in trouble. A couple of weeks ago, he was photographed. I think he was doing 70 kilometers an hour. What's that? I don't know, 40 miles an hour on a highway reading while he was driving. So somebody said, you know, mayor, you're the mayor. You, You shouldn't be reading and driving. You said he's a hard worker. He's always working. I'm a busy guy. Everybody has tried to read and drive, I imagine. And everybody has almost smashed into the car in front of them. And everybody has then stopped doing it for the most part. But but the mayor, you know, he, he makes an excuse. Anyway, the reporters have been hounding him because while he was in this hearing about whether he had committed this conflict of interest uh, a year and, and some ago. At the very same time, he hired three special assistants in his capacity as mayor, and all three of them were helping him with his voluntary coaching thing. There's nobody in the city who cares about the mayor doing volunteer work. Everybody's in favor of volunteer work. But if he's doing volunteer work on the city's dime, especially having campaigned, you know, on the the cut the gravy campaign, that was his slogan, you were going to cut the gravy. This is from a guy who looks like he's consumed a fair bit of gravy himself. That apparent hypocrisy, that is hard to take. As it happens, uh, Rob Ford, the mayor of Toronto, and his brother, Doug Ford, who's a city councillor, have their own radio show. It's on News 1010 in Toronto. And uh, yesterday, we're going to play a piece of tape from it now. Yesterday, they were responding to some of the criticism that has been coming their way. They also talked a little bit about how the press was lined up for hours outside football practice the other day. This is after the mayor had left this uh, city council executive committee meeting early in order to attend the scrimmage of the football team he coaches. So here's the tape. First voice you're going to hear is Doug Ford, who's the brother of the mayor. You know, folks, uh, let's jump on this right from right from the get-go, okay? And then we'll get on to some serious business because that's what the taxpayers want. The tax- they just put their name on a ballot and let's go toe-to-toe with them in a re-election. Like, I don't understand. No, bro, they can sit there and take shots at us and ridicule you, but why don't you just put your money where your mouth is and let's campaign? You, they can go after well, you and you one more and come after me as mayor and let's, well, let the, let the cards fall and, and we'll see you know, what happens. You, I'll debate any of those Okay. Well, you know what? It's a laughing when the people are calling me nonstop, saying just disregard them. You know, they're sitting there, they're camped out. Literally, they camped out three hours outside practice, and the kids are like, "This is this well, is no, there's a, there's a double standard. There's a double standard now. If it was the environmental group or the Tree Huggers oh, Association that you've you've cut off the grants and that they weren't held accountable before, there was no audits, and you you go after them. That's why these folks are angry, Rob. He says that's why these folks are angry. Are folks angry enough to see that uh, Mayor Ford doesn't serve out his entire term? Up to last week, it was considered unlikely that he would be removed from his job for the conflict of interest because people were willing to um, cut him some slack. And also, you know, he was elected and you can't contradict the will of the people on a small technical error. But as a result of the ensuing week in which he was seen to be still doing exactly the same thing that he was, you know, being censured for. If I were a betting man, and one should never bet, of course, about these things, but if I were a betting man, I'd say in the next election, he is toast. Speaking to us about Toronto's Mayor Rob Ford, Ian Brown, who's a feature writer for the Globe and Mail newspaper in Toronto. We've got a link to his article on Mayor Ford at our website, theworld.org. Ian Brown, nice to speak with you. Likewise. Thanks a lot.
Our GeoQuiz answer and our global hit coming up. You're listening to The World on PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. You'd think someone who'd already reached the summit of Mount Everest and the North and South Poles on foot might want to sit back and take a load off. But Sir Ranulph Fiennes has no intention of slowing down. Today, the 68-year-old British explorer announced his newest journey, which is planned for next year. He told the BBC that he's hoping to trek on foot across Antarctica in the middle of winter. We're setting out for six months at the beginning of winter, The penetration record from the coast inland in winter has been 60 miles. This journey is 2,000 miles. We're crossing a place which is ice average of 10,000 feet above sea level, darkness because the sun disappears for winter, 2,000 miles, no doctors available, no rescue facility on the entire continent should you need rescue. So yes, you don't want to run into problems. Problems like crevices, whiteout conditions, and frostbite, not to mention mental fatigue. The ice shelf crossing is expected to start in March. That's when the frozen continent starts getting pretty nippy, with winter temperatures falling to as low as 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It's that kind of hazard that claimed the lives of British explorer Robert Scott and his team a century ago. So what possesses someone to give this extreme trek a go? It is the last polar geographical challenge which humans haven't yet managed to deal with for very good reason and we hope that we might be able to deal with it we don't actually know that we will but you know sort of humans when they're pioneering in space or sound barrier or whatever it is you don't really know what lies ahead if you can't Um, learn it from previous attempts, which you can't because there haven't been any. It's a daring trip for anyone, let alone someone who's eligible for retirement. Fines has also had major heart surgery and lost several fingertips to frostbite, but he says he's not worried about the prospect of dying. I'm not sort of frightened per se of physical stuff happening to me because I'm pretty ancient and, you know, if, if you go, you go. Anybody can go. I've had a good time. But in terms of being frightened of what the steel and the rubber might do at a certain temperature. Uh, yeah, we're all a bit apprehensive about that. If Randall Fines and his team complete their trek across Antarctica, they've got a rendezvous with a ship near McMurdo Station on the Ross Sea. By the way, the Ross Sea is the answer to today's quiz. Rap music took off in Haiti about a decade ago, promoted by Haitian-American star Vyclef Jean. Since then, Rap Creole, as it's called, has exploded. Rappers are now all over Port-au-Prince. They record CDs in cramped back-alley studios. They perform at street parties. Fans call it the voice of the poor and the marginalized. But that voice is almost never female. The role's Amy Bracken reports on two big exceptions. The 2009 video of the group Mystic 703 features young male rappers along with some shots of women. Well, at least their legs, hips, and breasts. Then the crowd parts and a beautiful young woman, fully clothed, struts to the front, pushes a rapper out of the way, and begins to sing. (laughs) 
Enid Edouard, a.k.a. Princess Eud, is relatively small, but she commands attention. Her voice strong but easy, a sly smile spreading across her face. I just got out of my head any notion that girls don't rap or whatever, and I did what I needed to do. Eud grew up in a poor neighborhood on a hillside overlooking Port-au-Prince. She was one of seven children. She sang in church and then joined a neighborhood rap group, followed by several other bands, including Mystic 703. Then she went solo, pairing up mostly with another 703 member, Dead Crazy. Her growing fame at home led to invitations to play overseas in Cuba and Japan, no matter that she raps in Creole. After the show in Cuba, I was walking down the street. I had been doing a song called Yapale, and everyone on the street would say Yapale when they saw me. And in Japan, too, they had no idea what I was saying, but they really liked us. So overseas, we've had a lot of success. And all over Haiti. Eud is now working on her first solo album, combining rap with a variety of other styles to show off her range. To Karel Ped, a radio and TV personality who hosts music competitions, Eud has enormous potential. But he isn't crazy about her recent shift from socially conscious lyrics to more typical topics like love and celebrity rivalry. She's really talented. She's beautiful. She has a swag. She has everything. So she only needs like, great music to, to get people out. She's the queen of the Haitian rap. Uh, when, you, when you're thinking about female MC in Haiti, Eud is the only name that came up. There is another popular Haitian female rapper, maybe less polished, but just as powerful. Jean-Cilien Marie Innocent, a.k.a. Captain Giroff, made a splash in 2006 when Wyclef Jean held a hip-hop competition in her Port-au-Prince neighborhood, Bel Air. The theme, Cleaning Up the Streets. Of the 12 finalists, she was the only woman. Standing outside her home recently, she recalls the song she performed that day. At the time of the competition, Bel Air was just recovering from a period of politicized gang violence, and G. Ruff began working with a Brazilian group, Viva Rio, working with children as young as seven years old who had been drawn into the violence in her neighborhood and others. Her rapping focused on Bel Air, the violence, but also the positive energy and the artists that have emerged from the neighborhood. Last June, Viva Rio invited G. Ruff to Brazil for the Rio Plus 20 Sustainable Development Conference, and she teamed up with other female rappers in the favelas. Like Eud, G. Ruff is working on her first solo album. She recorded some in Rio and some in New York. Now she's living in a quieter neighborhood above town, but she hasn't forgotten where she came from. The name of the album is Bel Air Stand Up. Hey, 
for the world. I'm Amy Bracken, Port-au-Prince. You can see videos of G. Ruff and Princess Oud at theworld.org. Lots more there, too. From the Nana Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.